Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and uh, welcome to our Aerospace Nation series. We're really fortunate today that General Mark D. Kelly could join us. Uh, General Kelly uh, is the commander of Air Combat Command, located at Joint Base Langley-Eustis in Virginia. And in that role, he's responsible for organizing, training, equipping, and maintaining combat-ready airspace, cyber, and intelligence forces for rapid deployment as well as employment. This includes making sure our air defense forces are ready and can maintain peacetime air sovereignty in addition to meeting wartime demands. So welcome, General Kelly, and thanks very much for taking the time to join us today. Um, I'd like to start off by giving you an opportunity uh, to make some uh, opening remarks. So if you would, uh, we're looking forward to hearing an update on what's going on down at Air Combat Command and just what your priorities are for the future. So with that, uh, thanks very much again for being here and uh, over to you. Okay, well, thanks. It's uh, always good to catch up with current events uh, inside and outside of DC. I'm happy to revisit moments uh, from last month's AFA uh, whether it be fighter roadmap or other discussions uh, during the Q&A session. But uh, since that, uh, those sessions are pretty well documented and our time is limited. Uh, what I want to do is start with some of the, a bit of the less shiny, less sexy aspects of our key efforts in around ACC, which is uh, sometimes our enablers and our other efforts. And so first, what I wanted to mention and uh, I didn't have time during AFA just because, again, time's limited to talk about some of those key parts. And one, I'd say first and foremost, is our allies and partners that we work with, um, both, both here at ACC and the other MAGCOMs around the globe. Because namely, for us to project power, we have to have access spacing and overflight. It's important to know uh, which allies and partners will provide assured, assured, access in a time of crisis and which allies and partners provide high-end interoperability or better, which allies are truly interchangeable because they're up to a very, very high level of capability. These partnerships are important efforts. Uh, so they stay in the forefront of what we do as well as my other MAGCOM commanders out in the Pacific and Europe and uh, elsewhere. They provide great security benefits around the globe, the logistics, the comm, uh, Air-based defense structure, command and control, uplift, domain awareness, they're, they're foundational for us to project power. So key, key part of what we do day in and day out. And I'm on the phone with some treaty allies every now and then during the week. Second thing I'd like to mention is that I didn't get to call this out as well as I should have or like to during AFA is our rapid global mobility, our strat lift and our air refueling. I mean, no one who witnessed our C-17s and other airlifters evacuate 124,000 Afghan allies to a new free life questions the power of U.S. strategic airlift. Uh, these are the same capabilities, though, they will quickly get us to a fight, uh, and they remain foundational uh, enabler of global power projection for the joint force. I've never uh, deployed to a combat zone without significant airlift capability. I've never employed a weapon that didn't first require a visit to an Air Mobility Command tanker. Uh, and now our current efforts with agile combat employment brings its own unique of logistics challenges and our mobility warriors are really ready for the task as we train for ACE uh, around the globe. Uh, third, I would mention something you're very familiar with and that's our uh, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance capability. 
uh, as you know, it is a key uh, enabler. We need our ISR to be, uh, well, persistent, connected, and survivable. Right now, we're very persistent. Uh, and we're connected well through our uh, DCGS uh, for uh, processing, exploitation, and dissemination. Uh, but our connectivity needs to expand to a real-time node connection into ABMS, and we're working that hard. The survivability of our ISR enterprise is a focus area from you know, fixed wing, RQ4, U2, and all the way out to our ISR equities and uh, orbit. Um, next area I would mention with respect to key enablers and key efforts is our air-based defense. Um, the Air Force's infrastructure defense efforts uh, are currently focused on uh, directed energy research, development, test evaluation, counter small UAS, investments in cruise missile defense. Uh, to be an operational inside force, uh, we need air base hardening, we need active and passive defenses, and we need agile combat employment. I, I mentioned during AFA uh, that our Israeli Air Force partners, when I talked to John Norkin over there, their air chief, he wakes up every, every day under the cover of an iron dome. Uh, the Finnish Air Chief in that nation operates their Air Force out of a Granite Mountain. Uh, the Chinese and our other adversaries operate under layer upon layer upon layer of air defenses. Uh, I'd like all three, uh, but I need at least one, and we're working hard with our service partners uh, on those avenues. Um, we're always, as a service, like our other services, uh, striving to make sure we have decision superiority. Uh, if we're going to queue up decision superiority, we need info superiority, uh, which means besides ISR, we need domain awareness. And in our case, air domain awareness. Uh, we're fortunate, I'm fortunate every day to have the best maintenance airmen in the world working on our E3 Sentry uh, AWACS from the flight line to the back shop, our propulsion airmen, uh, phase airmen, all the way across the ramp at Tinker to the uh, depot. Uh, but while the E3 has served our nation well, uh, there is not a 2021 global supply chain for 707s. Uh, there's just not. Uh, that's because there's exactly zero airlines on the planet that operate the 707. Zero. Uh, so we're actively looking for more advanced uh, AMTI um, capability, commensurate with our closest allies that are ahead of us in that uh, endeavor. And last thing I'll mention, because I want to get to your questions and topics uh, from yourself, uh, if you have them, and then out in the audience, is while not an enabler, uh, and I mentioned at AFA that we need fifth-gen weapons for our fifth-gen Air Force. Uh, we've invested a lot of time, energy, and national resources to build a low observable force, uh, whether that be B-2s or uh, upcoming B-21 or F-22s or F-35s, et cetera. We will not get a good return on that investment of low observable platforms uh, if due to weapons limitations, we have to push them into ranges uh, where everyone is observable. Uh, so let me stop there for now uh, to ensure we get to your uh, questions. So over to you or the audience, whichever you'd prefer to go to. Well, thanks uh, General Kelly for those insights. Um, and um, before we jump into question, thanks for all that uh, you and your team uh, are doing uh, to maintain our nation's uh, security. Uh, and so before we get into some questions from the audience, uh, let me start with uh, a couple of my own. Uh, back when you were the uh, Air Force uh, A3, 
you spoke about the capacity crunch facing the Air Force, and you had a, a very powerful example where you explain the assignment of aircraft and personnel in a variety of scenarios uh, in combatant commands and that they were always running out of air power before their core needs were met. Um, how has your time at Air Combat Command uh, impacted your thinking in, uh, in that regard? No, good question. Capacity is um, on the forefront of everything we do every day here. As I, I discussed capacity during AFA, and uh, warfighting capacity is as important as any capability. Uh, specifically, you know, since uh, Desert Storm, since 1991, you know, we've gone from an Air Force of 4,000 fighters that averaged uh, around eight years old, they were honed to fight a peer adversary, namely the Soviets, to today around 2,000 fighters that average 28 years old that have been optimized and acclimated for Middle East operations. Uh, you can handle Middle East operations with a smaller and older fighting force. Uh, a peer adversary puts uh, sustainment uh, and performance demands on our force that generate significant stress and risk uh, on our smaller and older fighting force. Uh, quantity has a quality all its own, um, and we need every shooter we can get on the combat frontier. Uh, I would not advocate that we reduce our capacity from its uh, current state. And so thanks for bringing up that key topic. Well, a bit of a follow-up. Um, you're very well aware of the fact that it's not just about mass capacity, uh, but it's also about having the right capabilities. So we need a modern force mix. In that regard, what are your thoughts on the type of capabilities we'll need to acquire uh, to get out of a ratio where 80% of our current fighter inventory was bought by the Reagan administration? Um, yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, yes, uh, having 80% of our current fighter inventory, and you know I'm a kind of a nutty historian, having 80% uh, of our current fighter inventory from the Reagan administration is an issue. Uh, but it's the assets from the uh, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, and Carter administrations that should concern us all. Uh, the, T7 is on its way. Uh, the T7 is on its way, but for now, we still train our fledgling fighter pilots in the 1960s uh, T-38s uh, and then put them straight into a 2021 model F-35 or other advanced fighter. We still fly A-10s and E-3 centuries from the 1970s, uh, et cetera. So besides high-end capability, we need affordable capacity that's relevant, um, that doesn't average 28 to 30 years uh, per MDS, per weapon system, if you would. Our F-16 will remain our affordable capacity fighter into the next decade. And we're working hard to keep it relevant for the modern fight, whether it be airframe sensors, uh, weapons, et cetera. So, so thanks, thanks for the, uh, obviously the capacity dynamic that's important. Yeah, and you alluded to uh, capability and its importance uh, earlier, but um, it, it, if you've got a budget plus up, and I know that's a long shot, but uh, many of us are uh, and folks in the Congress, too, are aware of the significant challenges the Air Force has been put in. But what are the sorts of capabilities that you'd prioritize? Uh, Capability-wise, um, I'd say we first and foremost have to fully fund uh, NGAD to fill the 6th Gen Air Superiority. I discussed that during the Fighter Roadmap, and I'm happy to continue or revisit that dialogue. But 
fielding a capability that's designed to operate beyond a uh, single spectral band of the, of the RF spectrum uh, to thrive in a multispectral environment and a capability that operates outside of European combat ranges uh, that senses and connects and that I can put in the adversary's backyard is key. It's not just key for the Air Force, it's key for the Joint Force because the Joint Force is organized, trained, equipped to operate with their superiority. It's not remotely, not remotely designed to operate without it and everyone's counting on the United States Air Force to provide that. And then the other capabilities that I already, I mentioned and touched on, whether it be the fighter roadmap or my opening comments, uh, would be fifth gen, uh, you know, AMTI and fifth gen weapons for our fifth gen Air Force. And then I already mentioned air-based defense and then the realization of ABMS because of the criticality of C2 in a peer fight, thanks. Uh, you bet. Now, looking at uh, modern threats a bit, during Operation Inherent Resolve, uh, we saw the Russians deploy a double-digit SAMs to the region, uh, and uh, we're working to deter direct engagements with Russia and China. Uh, but if we can do that and be successful, we're still going to see their high-end equipment in lesser contingencies. Um, how do we manage this new type of threat or these new type of threats? Uh, and the demand that they may uh, portend or foresee. Yeah, um, when you when you open the question with modern threats, I thought you're going to take a little bit different angle. But to your specific question, uh, modern threats it goes to, uh, as you know, our ISR enterprise in the electromagnetic spectrum enterprise to provide awareness of these modern threats. You know, if we know where they're at, uh, we can handle them uh, in our organic capabilities on our shooters actually do a pretty good job of their own EMS um, sensing, if you would, uh, sensing grid that we need out in the fighter force. But when you first brought up uh, uh, the question of modern threats, those aren't, those frankly aren't the modern threats that keep me up at night. Um, on the other hand, you know, what we've read over the last few weeks, a FOBS and uh, a fractional orbital bombardment system that we have read about from China that they just tested with one of their hypersonic uh, vehicles that unlike, for those folks who follow this, unlike a ballistic trajectory or even a hypersonic uh, glider trajectory, enters low earth orbit and then deorbits to maneuvering hypersonic terminal stage should concern us all, every single one of us uh, that's a citizen of this nation. You know, and these are things we open up and see not on our daily uh, classified intel, not on our very, very highly compartmented classified intel. This is stuff that's in our unclassified newspapers uh, today. Um, and, and, and that's there and we should take note because that is a great power capability. Um, and the Chinese are serious about displacing this nation in every domain and at every turn. Um, that's why when we also open our newspapers, we see our partners and allies, for example, the Australians, um, a couple of weeks ago, committing to an investment of advanced attack submarines because they know they have to invest in great power capabilities. Um, now, on the other hand, if, I, if we opened our newspapers and we read in the Shanghai English version daily, uh, that, for example, China was going to refurbish an entire fleet of 45-year-old attack planes that they couldn't use in a pure fight, uh, well, then we'd know that they frankly weren't serious about winning. 
Okay, moving on to something that you mentioned, and it's uh, of interest to uh, everybody tuning in today. Uh, defending our air bases and power projection infrastructure is also becoming increasingly challenged. Uh, could you explain for our audience just how Agile Combat Employment, or ACE, by the acronym it's known by, aims to address this, and what kind of progress um, are you making in actually implementing this concept of operations? Yeah, it's, it's really going well. It's not without its challenges. Uh, namely, it brings on a new logistics challenge and it brings up a new comm and thus a C2 challenge. It's really going well. It's essentially operationalized in the CENTCOM theater. Um, uh, so ACE operating to and from disparate locations happens every day day in CENTCOM is we take off from one location, refuel at another, rearm at a third, and maybe end the day at the fourth, for example. I frankly have a hard time keeping track of exactly where our forces spend the night every day in CENTCOM, but that's actually a good thing uh, because Lieutenant John Guillo, the AFCENT commander, knows exactly where they are and he knows exactly what their status is. Uh, we've also recently conducted big Agile combat employment exercises, both in PACAF and USAFE, and ACE has gone from niche to mainstream. And our airmen really thrive in this environment. Uh, they took to it really well, and they want more more of it. So, you know, it's actually going pretty well. Uh, thanks. Oh, very good. A bit of a follow up. Um, are there any takeaways that you can share from the recent exercises, like uh, Rally in the Rockies twenty one and Sky Shield three? Uh, the rally in the Rockies, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was mostly, if not exclusively, the uh, 355th Fighter Wing at a DM operating in around uh, Pete Field and other outstations in, in around Colorado Springs. And Sky Shield 3 was, was one of the ACE-type events we did in AFSIM. This one we did with some regional partners, uh, most notably the Qataris uh, were at a big play in that. But what we see out of uh, all of these exercises is the need, uh, as I mentioned before, for innovative solutions to logistics in C2, our command and control. For example, um, we, we as an Air Force, we as a nation didn't design the uh, HC-130J uh, uh, as a ACE uh, C2 node. Uh, but when you have a platform that can move pallets, gear, tools, airmen, that comes with organic SATCOM, data links, and HF comms. It's really powerful and helps our forces move in around theater and sustain the, the pace of combat ops and complicate adversary targeting. And so, yeah, it's a key topic and thanks. Um, you uh, mentioned a little bit earlier the, the challenge of uh, maintaining a big wing command and control ISR inventory, but at the same time, it continues to be in high demand. Uh, but obviously old and increasingly costly to sustain. At the same time, it's going to take us uh, many years to fully realize JADC2 vision, uh, which we'll see uh, many parts of this mission distributed. Uh, but we still need the command and control skills, you just mentioned why, distributed in relevant, relevant locations across the battle space. Could you talk a little bit about your bridging strategy between the two, where we are today, and the JADC2 in the future? I appreciate it. You're right. Um, we do need to bridge uh, where we're at. So I would say when we discuss uh, evolving C2, 
Um, you really need to look through the lens first of what I'd say C3. What I, what I mean by that is the communication piece to command and control is key. Um, if you kind of uh, if you kind of go backwards to look as we go forwards, when we started Operation Enduring Freedom 20 years ago, uh, we put JSTARS and AWACS overhead for the entirety of our operations, which provided continuous command and control over Afghanistan because they provided continuous comm nodes over Afghanistan. And as the years went by, uh, the organic platform SATCOM of a fighter bomber airlift and the domain awareness that was provided increasingly by ground-based radars meant that our connection to say, for example, the 609th AOC uh, or an air support operations center uh, inside or outside a theater was instantaneous and it's regardless of the distance. And so you can see a migration just there in that short time uh, that's worth noting. And so now as you kind of look and go forward, you realize that these are the types of distances and constructs we'll need in the Pacific to stay connected now to say the 613th AOC. But unlike Afghanistan, we need uh, a modern sensing grid and that can make sense uh, of uh, that, that area. And it can keep pace with a modern fight. So the short version to that is we'll bridge uh, our JADC2 um, BMC with via space connectivity, SATCOM, and by modernizing our, our sensing grid. But really, really good question. Very good. Let's shift gears uh, a bit, uh, General Kelly, and uh, talk a little bit about remotely piloted aircraft in the future. Um, the MQ 9s obviously. Uh, been a tremendous mission asset against terrorists and insurgent forces in permissive airspace. And given the capacity challenges that face the Air Force right now, uh, it seems like it might be prudent that the Air Force look at expanding its use past what we've seen over the past 20 years. And while we all understand we're not going to see these aircraft over the highest threat areas, um, are you considering other areas where they could pick up mission demand, for example, to free up fighters to flow into the fight? Uh, some examples might include cruise missile defense or maritime patrol, that kind of thing. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no good question. So, uh, you know, a pivot to uh, great power competition means you're going to pivot to great power weather conditions. Uh, <laughs> and that requires increasingly auto takeoff, auto land that we're modernizing uh, much of our MQ-9 fleet uh, to, to have that capability. Uh, besides being able to, uh, to operate in more austere weather, mostly takeoff and land weather, um, auto takeoff, auto land reduces your forward LRE, your launch and recovery element footprint, and allows us to forego um, some requirements. For example, we have before we go into a host country, we normally in our um, legacy RPA fleet have to get permission to transmit certain RF bands for the, for the LRE. Having auto takeoff, auto land uh, obviates that, um, that requirement. So it's very, very helpful. Um, unlike the original RQ-1 and MQ-1, the MQ-9 uh, can lift a pretty decent uh, weapons or sensor load. If you download the weapons, you can upload a pretty good sensor load. A good example of that is our Gorgon Stair uh, capability that we, we used of IR and EO sensors. So short version is, is it uh, having 20 hours, 20 plus hours of sensor utilization, whether it's IR or EO, uh, synthetic aperture radar, other sensors means that 
in the cost per flying hour that we get at MQ-9 means it'll continue to be a key contributor to our sensing grid. A bit of a follow-up, what are your thoughts on what comes after MQ-9 out there in the future? Um, yeah, well, just like I mentioned, like the RQ-1 turned into the MQ-1 and the MQ-1 uh, drove our fielding into the MQ-9 for increased uh, payload, increased relevance, uh, increased lethality. Uh, as example I'll give you is, as we look towards um, at air UX, our adversary air unmanned capability that we're just putting our toe in the water on. Um, we'll execute that unmanned adversary air effort, uh, but you know we, it's probably smart that simultaneously as we do that and we put, say, for example, an at air UX capability on the western ranges of Nellis, when they're not providing that adversary air look, um, they're sitting right over some pretty powerful. Uh, ground sensors that we use to replicate the adversary, that we'll use those to assess the capability of a faster, lower radar cross-section, multi-spectral unmanned system in around those threat arrays. And I think it'll inform our, our way ahead. So we'll get kind of um, two different efforts out of that at our UX uh, investment. Oh, fascinating observation. I appreciate that insight. Now, earlier you spoke about the importance of ensuring we have fifth generation weapons and surveillance capabilities to complement our fifth generation uh, fighters. Um, meanwhile, the airborne early warning inventory remains outdated and it's only getting older. Um, so could you elaborate a bit why you think updating the Air Force's uh, airborne moving target indicator capability is so important and what solution are you advocating? So as I mentioned, uh, we all want uh, decision superiority, and the only way we're going to get decision superiority is have information superiority, and the only way we're going to get the information we need is to have domain awareness, and the domain the Air Force is tasked to understand is the air domain, um, and as I referenced earlier, and I think I referenced at AFA, um, the 707 has served us well. It's served airlines well, uh, but since 2013, in, exactly zero airlines on planet Earth operate 707 because it's unsustainable without a Herculean effort. Um, uh, we're fortunate that we have miracle workers every day on the flight line at Tinker and at Elmendorf and at Kadena and where we operate our uh, E3 sentries. But there's only so many miracles these miracle workers can pull off uh, before physics comes into play of a 45-year-old airframe. We also need to look beyond just the the, the the material challenges we have and realize that we need a multi-spectral solution to a multi-spectral problem. And that's what our allies have gone to with the uh, E7 Wedgetail. It's not just interoperable with what we need to do. It, it can be interchangeable with what we, we do in terms of uh, capabilities. So it's obviously a key effort uh, that we're looking towards and we need to, it can't happen fast enough. So thanks. Um, okay, no, thank you for that. A uh, little bit a broader set of questions uh, now before we head over to the audience. Could you give us your thoughts on what's different about the Air Force's force structure from how the other services use their aircraft? I mean, two quick examples that come to mind are the Homeland Defense Mission, as well as the percentage of service component aircraft available to a joint force air component commander at any given time. Yeah, well, as, uh, as our motto says, it's uh, air power anytime, anywhere. 
so besides Homeland Defense, where the United States Air Force provides 100% of the aviation assets, mostly from our Air National Guard team, along with our Coast Guard partners, some of that, quote unquote, air power anytime, anywhere, some of that air power is air superiority, some of that air power is strategic attack. And the anywhere means uh, it could include an adversary's sovereign space if required. As I mentioned before, the Joint Force, and not just the Air Force, the Joint Force requires the Air Force, the United States Air Force, to provide air superiority. And our Joint Force is organized, trained, equipped to operate with air superiority. It is not remotely, not remotely designed to operate without it. Um, also, the Outside my normal lane of expertise, we, we have to acknowledge that the Air Force provides the nation with strategic attack via you know, B-2s and soon to be B-21 or other bomber capabilities. Uh, these types of capabilities don't require uh, basing rights, uh, foreign ports uh, that take weeks and months to set up. No other service, and for that matter, no other allied nation provides uh, an allied coalition with a bomber force. And we need to remember every day those no-fail missions as well. No, thank you for that. Um, on future risk, for the past 30 years, um, we've gotten used to operating in a relatively permissive environment. Um, and we tended, at, at the planning level, we tended to uh, not really think about attrition and loss inventories that much. We shrunk our pilot production pipeline to one that affords almost no elasticity and our industrial base has little surge capacity. Uh, how do you look at building back in the margin um, we'll likely need for combat losses in the event of uh, pure conflict? I mean, you, you know more than uh, most that it takes years to acquire aircraft and train pilots. So I'm guessing that we'll need some more capacity. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, we discussed, uh, we discussed aircraft capacity earlier, but I'm glad you brought up uh, the pilot capacity. What I would add to that is uh, the sustainment capacity. Uh, historically, um, in a pure fight, air forces uh, normally lose be because they run out of pilots before they run out of platforms. Um, even in World War II, Germany and Japan ran out of pilots uh, before they ran out of airplanes. Uh, in a pure fight, uh, we'll take losses in both. So we need capacity in both. Um, our sustainment enterprise uh, in our weapon system sustainment accounts are designed for steady state, um, often just in time uh, logistics supply chains. And a ramp to a surge sustainment and supply capacity is tough, very tough business. It's not like turning, uh, for example, the Ford's uh, Willow Run plant into a B-24 factory that, oh, by the way, produced a bomber every 63 minutes in World War II, or turning a Packard plant uh, to convert it to produce Merlin engines. It, it just doesn't happen in today's supply chains and high-tech manufacturing um, practices. So, so the short version is, is that we will enter a peer fight uh, with the capability and the capacity uh, in people, equipment, platforms and resources uh, that we have on hand and be very challenged uh, as every nation will be very challenged to surge uh, industry to meet the demands of consumption that a purify would bring. No, thanks very much for that. I mean, it, it does underline the importance of uh, 
uh, kind of changing our mindset from uh, what we used to have and one of the key elements of, uh, of pure fights in the, in the future. Uh, well, General Kelly, thanks again for your comments and uh, sharing your valuable perspectives on uh, the future of uh, uh, aerospace power. Uh, before we roll into the uh, uh, audience Q&A, I just wanted to make the audience aware that we're planning our next Senior Leadership Aerospace Nation event for Tuesday, November 23rd, uh, when we'll be hosting uh, General uh, Ken Wilsbach, the PACAF commander, and we hope you all will join us for that. Um, and tomorrow, we're going to be doing a virtual rollout of our latest research study, um, Building a Bridge, Getting to the Future Force, Fighter Force Our Nation Needs by Heather Penny. Um, so please join us for that one too. So with that, let's take some questions for the uh, audience. When I call on you, please state your name and affiliation for our guests before asking your question. Uh, and as we're lining up uh, uh, people to ask in person, I've got a uh, text question for you from uh, Mr. David um, Awata. Uh, and it touches on something that you mentioned right up front, and that is uh, relationships with our partners. And here's this question. Integrating the Global Hawk F-15, F-16, F-22, and F-35 um, has been ongoing within Air Combat Command. As our allied partners receive the F-35, how is Air Combat Command working with the Royal Australian Air Force, the Japanese Air Self-Defense Force, and others to ensure integration of not just fourth and fifth generation, but the bilateral security needs as well? Uh, thanks for the question, and especially what you mentioned, the bilateral security needs. So first of all, with respect to bilateral security, you know, the F-35 is a, has a global supply chain, and which means it has a global supplier chain, and there are manufacturing sources that come out of, you know, Italy and Japan and uh, other other countries that are in the consortium of the F-35. And so our cybersecurity for the entire uh, F-35 program is only as strong as its uh, weakest uh, edge, if you would, of all of our folks that help work on the parts and supply chain at F-35. Um, to the other parts of the cybersecurity or just security in general, besides um, training and tactics development that we do with our Partners. We actually have partner nations that uh, work in a joint uh, test team out at Edwards, um, British and Australian and uh, Netherlands, etc. One of the bigger things that we work with our partners on, uh, it's less about the hardware and more about the software. Uh, we got to make sure that our uh, networks can talk to each other. We can share information over a network, uh, a warfighting network, mainly the, you know, the Madeline Link 16 networks. Uh, the other software piece is making sure our simulators uh, are up to speed. The other software piece is making sure our Alice and our Odin can talk to each other and share uh, logistics information. And so uh, while we talk a lot of hardware, frankly, most of the energy that I end up committing ends up going down the software lane of mission data files and simulators and Alice and Odin and stuff like that. But you know, appreciate the question. It is a continual piece we work with. And F-35 is probably the most visible uh, ally and partner capability we share with other air forces. Okay, let me turn it over to uh, Mr. John Turpak. Good morning, General. How are you doing today? Good. How are you, John? Just fine, thank you. Uh, got a couple of questions uh, of things that have happened since we uh, spoke with you at AFA. 
Um, there have been a couple of uh, announcements, the Air Force looking for the E-7 wedge tail and also an advanced tactical trainer. I wonder if you had, uh, if you could give us some indication of when you want those things to be in the inventory so we could uh, figure out what, what, what's going to happen between now and then. Yeah, no, really good question. And thanks. I kind of already commented on these seven as far as wh when I want them. Uh, when I want them in the inventory, it would have been two years ago. Uh, so not to be flippant on that, but that's actually what I, the answer I would give you or Congress or anybody else. Um, because as I mentioned in my opening comments, we, uh, to the E7, that air domain awareness piece, uh, I frankly don't think we, we, I mean, including me, have done a really good job of unambiguously articulating the no-fail mission of uh, the air domain sensing piece that we owe not just the Air Force, but the Joint Force, and that our, our phenomenal operators and sustainers of the E3 are working hard every day to, to provide, both in the homeland out on the, on the uh, pacing theaters. Um, so I'd like it two years ago. Uh, but in reality, uh, I've talked with our AQ folks on a recurring basis, and you saw the announcements of us uh, pursuing RFIs with uh, Boeing and Northrop Grumman. I, I frankly uh, will defer to them with respect to how fast it can actually happen in terms of reality. Um, I don't think it's going to happen in a 2022 or 2023, but I can guarantee I'll be talking to them on a weekly basis to make sure that we get it just as soon as we can there. With respect to the advanced tactical trainer, again, I kind of touched on that with respect to every day our, our really trusty T-38 that, that taught every four-star in the Air Force and those that have retired uh, how to fly fast and how to um, operate and land fast and, and employ fast. Uh, they still, if you look at the tail numbers, many of them are Johnson era 1960s um, tail numbers. And so every day that airplane becomes just another uh, step more disconnected from the advanced avionics, the advanced sensing, uh, the advanced processing that our, our modern fighters have. And so we can't fill that void fast enough. The T-7 that our Air Force is pro uh, procuring for Air Education Training Command, we need to train our youngest aviators. And the first, I believe it's 349 is the program record or unquestionably going to Air Education Training Command to train those folks. But I need to get our aviators as soon as I can into something that is not such a leap from a 1964 T-38 to a 2021 F-35. Because right now I'm putting that bridge that we talked about a bridge earlier in the C-2 domain. I'm putting that bridge, that tactical bridge on the shoulders of our young instructors um, on the flight line. And so... Uh, again, with respect to how fast that can come, I, I would have to defer to our SAF AQ team. Uh, but, but they get a call from me uh, often about I needed it yesterday. Thanks, John. Okay, thanks. Real quick follow-up. Uh, uh, you expect the, uh, the trainer sometime within this decade or as uh, after the T7 is done delivering to uh, AETC? You know, I, the short answer is I don't know, because I don't know, A, what level of, uh, first of all, I don't think we can just sole source the T7. That's for acquisition specialists to talk to me about. You know, by the way, there could be a, a different solution out there, but I need something like that. And then how fast industry uh, can respond and get us something that is a little bit closer, something that's not 20,000 plus 
dollars cost per flying error, closer to two to three thousand dollars cost per flying error. That comes a little bit closer to our modern avionics. And so again, I apologize, John. Uh, um, I am the the requirer, not the acquirer. And so I'm going to defer to smarter people to do the acquiring. Um, and we'll try to get you some better information as soon as we can. Thank you so much. You bet. Uh, thank you. As General Dip Tool is rebooting, we will take uh, our next question from Rachel Cohen. Hey, good morning. Um, this is Rachel Cohen with Air Force Times. Um, so the, the dual capable aircraft mission for fighter jets has traditionally been um, centered on Europe and NATO, uh, supporting NATO. So with putting the B-61 on the F-35, um, are you planning to expand the DCA mission to the Indo-Pacific? And if so, how are you preparing for that? No, really good question. But Rachel, that goes to, you know, our nuclear posture review, uh, STRATCOM, you know, those are national policy decisions. Um, and so I'm not trying to be evasive on the question. It's just outside my authority and outside my swim lane of where, where we do and where we don't lay down nuclear capabilities. Obviously, those are not trivial, you know, questions and decisions of our, of our policymakers. Um, and so you, you'll probably know uh, about a week after I know if we, if we choose to expand that. But I apologize. I, I actually don't know. And if I did know, I probably couldn't reveal anything. Is there any sort of timeline for, for deciding that? Not that I know of, no. Okay. Hey, General Kelly, I'm sorry I dropped off there. I got the blue screen of death and I had to reboot the computer. So um, I don't know if you have already touched on Frank Wolf, uh, no. but if not, Frank, over to you. Oh, thanks. Uh, hi, General. Um, I just wondered uh, if you could give us uh, sort of an update on uh, the F-35A availability. Um, I believe they're uh, fairly recently of the 297, uh, I guess, assigned aircraft that ACC had. I think like 40 some odd, 46 were down for either power modules or some uh, engine issues. Um, but I wanted to see sort of your expect expectancy for uh, on a daily basis, how many aircraft you would like to see be able to um, be available to fly and basically if if the pilots have enough uh, training right now uh, if they're called upon to go to war uh, I think at one time it was some 300 hours a year I would guess it would be like 25 hours uh, per month now that uh, flight time uh, but I'm wondering what what the status of the uh, <clears throat> flight hours per month that that pilots are getting uh, to uh, to to fly and in terms of simulators, uh, the hours that are, uh, any supplemental hours there? No, good question, really. Uh, thanks for the question. And so uh, just starting with the first thing you touched on, I think your number is pretty close that uh, a few weeks ago, I'll go with a month to six weeks ago, we were down about uh, 46, 48 um, F-135 engines. We've actually made progress on that. And now I'll just say we're sub 40 uh, without giving you a specific number, uh, but we're making good progress. And it really is a testament uh, to the teaming uh, that we have with Pratt & Whitney at our main engine depot at Tinker, um, Oklahoma City Air Logistics Center. They just do phenomenal work there. And that number going below 40 is not a trivial accomplishment because they've gone below 40 at the same time we're introducing jets more and more jets every day to the system so it's more than just a a small uh improvement it's an exponential improvement 
and I expect them to continue that trend of uh, getting toward zero uh, just as soon as we can. Uh, but we've had to pull some levers um, to make sure we don't overconsume our engines for uh, for not a good return on training investment. For example, I've had to curtail some of our air show uh, schedule uh, east of the Mississippi unless we can utilize an airplane that's already in that area. Because I just can't, I, I can't good conscious fly two airplanes from Hill all the way to the East Coast um, and utilize a bunch of flying hours while we have young, uh, young aviators, whether it be at Eglin or elsewhere, can't get their training sorties. But we are getting them their training sorties. Um, to, your, to your comment earlier about getting 300 hours a year, uh, that to me sounds very high. Uh, the reason I say it sounds very high is that's the amount of flying I got when I was a captain. I really would like to get it to the captains of today, uh, but I truly believe that's a bridge too far. If we get them 200 hours a year, we're doing pretty good. Um, they do mix their sorties with simulators, their, their live sorties with simulators. And it goes to the training environment we provide them. The operational wing at Hill has great training airspace in the Utah Test and Training Range. The operational squadrons we're standing up at Ileson, Alaska, have access to the uh, Joint Pacific uh, Air Range, which are great ranges. I'm a little more concerned about putting a whole lot of F-35 squadrons, which we're going to do, down in the southeast of the U.S. For example, if we have, uh, when we fill out three F-35 squadrons at Tyndall, We'll add that to two F-35 squadrons at Eglin. We'll add that to an F-35 squadron at Danley for the Alabama Guard. We'll add that to an F-35 squadron in Jacksonville. That's a lot of airplanes that need adversaries, training infrastructures, emitters on the ground. And I believe that our fielding of F-35s, we have to put some effort and focus to the training infrastructure to get them. I'm, I'm more concerned about that training infrastructure in that area of the nation than I am about uh, the specifics of hours, even though the hours is very, very important. But the short answer to your question is we're getting them the training hours they need, they need but we monitor that very closely. Thanks. Um, just a quick follow-up, just in terms of the, uh, when you're looking across beyond the, well, you said sub 40 now for the for the F-135, uh, so that, but in terms of the average availability of the F-35A now to fly, um, it can fly, you know, partial mission capable, uh, but still can fly. Um, just wonder what your what what that is now. And uh, when you look at the actual squadron level um, uh, data that you can, um, when you look at sort of uh, any issues that you see, is it really availability of parts? The parts aren't aren't living up to their their life that they're supposed to live up to. And and uh, what if you have any thoughts on that? No, the squadrons are doing okay, but regardless if it's an F-35 squadron or a, an F-16 squadron in the Guard or an F-16 squadron in the Reserve or an F-16 squadron in the active duty, rough math, if you kind of get out bar napkin math, if we run about a 65% aircraft availability rate, we're getting the aviators the training they need and we're holding the readiness we need and we have the deployability we need. When you take a squadron and you count the jets that you have down for depot or down for maintenance or down for supply, and you come out with a 65% aircraft availability, you're actually doing okay because we can surge up to deploy or into combat uh, above 70. But I tend to look at 65% aircraft availability is pretty much a steady state 
uh, line that I need to get for my readiness and my, my training proficiency. So thanks. Good. Okay, let's go to uh, Valerie and Sinna. All right. So um, I had a question for, um, you know, based on your answer to John Turpak a little bit ago about um, the AMTI mission. Um, you mentioned a RFI with Northrop, and I must have completely missed what happened uh, there. So can you explain what you guys are doing with Northrop for that? And, um, you know, connected to that, we've been hearing a lot about the wedge tail, but is the Air Force considering other options for an E3 replacement? Because I would think that there are other companies aside from Boeing that have options or would like to develop something to play in this space. Yeah, no, thanks, Valerie. I appreciate it. Um, if there's other companies that have uh, solutions to our AMTI uh, requirement, um, I'd appreciate if they'd send me an email, or if you know of them, send me an email, because I don't know of them. Right now, the wedge tail is only the fielded and proven capability we have. As far as uh, uh, airframe capability and, and, and fused mission system, and the mission system is a Northrop Grumman uh, product. Um, that's the only one that, that I'm aware of. And so my, my gut feel is, and again, I'm going to defer from my requiring uh, uh, expertise that I give our acquiring uh, experts to them as far as the specifics of the RFIs they sent out to industry in general. Um, but right now, I'm not aware of another solution for air domain awareness that can be rapidly fielded in the time horizons we need. Okay, let's uh, let's go to uh, Pat Host from Jane's. Pat Host from Jane's. Hello, sir. Hey, uh, what about this advanced tactical trainer that you want to buy? Can you not do with uh, the T seven? Why don't you just buy more T sevens? Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, there there may not be a capability gap, um, and there might not be anything that we need to do. Uh, but the flip side is um, there might be other industry solutions either added to the airplane that exists now or, frankly, a completely new airframe. And so uh, you're absolutely right. It may be able to fill most of our needs. But the difference between going from training to fighter training will unambiguously generate a size, weight, and power uh, requirement because we're not just going to uh, take off and land, is, 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 which are key, key parts of every mission. We need to make sure our, our, our landings equal our takeoffs. Uh, but the other piece of it is, is there'll be, um, I expect there'll be an increased demand for uh, sensor capability, whether that be a uh, small radar, small jammer. There'll be, I expect, I don't know, but I expect there to be an increased fuel requirement for uh, mission duration. And afterburner use, I expect there to be uh, at least a nascent small uh, weapons uh, computing capability on there, at least for a AIM-9 IR missile capability, and some simulation playback that either has real or simulated or constructed threat awareness. All of those drive requirements that weren't in the original T7, you know, statement of requirements. And so it's not a criticism of the T7. They built what they were designed to build, but it may or may not fit the demand of going from flying to fighting because they're a different avenue. They just happen to take place in the same space. 
Real quick, the uh, Navy wants a new tactical surrogate aircraft trainer themselves. Would you be open to a joint program for this? Um, I'm never averse to working or talking with the Navy, but I can't tell you. I, I'm not familiar. I apologize with exactly what they need uh, mission-wise. And so the, the folks who work for me and the folks who work up in the Pentagon who work these requirements, I'm sure they'll be uh, squinting with their ears on what the Navy's doing or not doing. And if it fits what we're doing, we'll obviously uh, look to, uh, to meet with them. If it doesn't work for what we're doing, I mean, we've seen across the history of our two services. I mean, there's a reason why when we both fielded fourth gen air superiority, they bought the F-14 and we bought the F-15. It wasn't because there was uh, different, huge differences in what we need to do, but there is differences in how we do business. And so uh, I apologize, I can't give you a better answer than that. But we'll team with them where we can, like we do with the F-35, and we won't team with them if we can compared to the F-15 and F-14. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, I, I've got a great comment on F-14s, but I'll, I'll save it for uh, um, off, the, uh, off the record. Um, Brian Everstein. Yes, thank you. It's Brian Everstein with Aviation Week. Um, I had a quick question going back to engines. Earlier this month, the DOD IG had a report out auditing uh, F-15 and F-16 engines at depots and stated that there's a shortage there expected to last until about 2024. Can you say how this has impacted your operations? Brian, thanks for the question. And um, uh, I spend uh, as much time, uh, I, I met with, uh, I spent a whole week with uh, John Bunch at FMC and I just got off a video teleconference with John Bunch. And we stay closely lashed at the hip on all things sustainment, all things depot, whether it be our engine depot, component depots, or our main depots at Ogden Tinker and Warner Robins. And so thanks, thanks for the question. Right now, today, as I sit here, we are, we are meeting all of our requirements with our engine supply chain. And most of our engine supply chain uh, that you probably know goes through Tinker. That's, that, matter of fact, I visited there recently to talk with um, the great uh, airmen, uh, airmen meaning our, our civilian contractors and GS and our, our uniform. But specifically to the F-16, F-15 engine, I know there's pressure on the system, but right now we're meeting all of our demands. But, I, but I'm not surprised one bit if there is pressure on the supply system into 2024. I would frankly be surprised if there wasn't pressure beyond 2024. But right now, today, as I see, sit here, we do not have, uh, for example, holes, uh, MICAP uh, impacts to our F-16, F-15 fleet. But we do have significant pressure. We do not have a a overwhelming number of spare engines, and that would be pressurized even greater into a, a high-paced kinetic fight. It seems like there's pressure on quite a few fronts. We've talked 35, just talked 15, 16. If it does go to 2024, what sort of method steps can you do to make sure you don't run into these sorts of shortage issues? No, good question. I, I, frankly, I think, Brian, a better example uh, is to is really more of my AWACS fleet. My AWACS fleet operates uh, TF-33 engines, and those TF-33 engines uh, are also used in J-STARS, and they're also used on the B-52. Uh, not to go into too much uh, detail, but the engine in turn, the TF-33, uh, shares the same core, fan, uh, turbine uh, module. Some of the other components, uh, fuel, fuel controllers and things like that are different, but the short story is, is that uh, TF-33s are my greatest pressure point right now on my AWACS and JSTARS fleet. When I take, when my team takes an airplane 
from one sided tinker to the other. And what I mean by that is from the flight line of the 552nd Air Control Wing to the depot at Ogden, which is in exactly an eighth of a mile away. Before those engines cool down, uh, our technicians are removing the engines to cannibalize them to take back over and put engines on the fleet. That is high, high pressure on the sustainment system. And we have not manufactured these engines from uh, Pratt & Whitney for many, many years, as you might expect. And so to manufacture parts or to find parts is a 24-7 business. Um, that's, that, that engine and that supply chain consumes a lot more of my time and energy and concern than the F-15, F-16 line. But if we got into a shooting fight and we had to double or triple our sortie rates, which means we double or triple our, our hours on the F-15, F-16 fleet, we would have to ramp up in terms of material and shift work to keep pace with that demand. But um, we've done that before, and I'm pretty confident we can do that again. I'm not losing a lot of sleep over the F-100 series engine. Thanks. Um, okay, John Kelly, we've got one here from uh, one of our Air Force fellows here at the Mitchell Institute, Lieutenant Colonel Josh Holliday. And here's his question. Sir, you spoke about having to have ACE to win a future fight. Do you foresee the need for a better defined and exercise tested command and control relationship between a deployed AEF commander and the mobility tanker forces that are required to enable ACE maneuver and supply? Does Air Combat Command need to focus some of its exercises to include AMC Transcom and figure out the logistics side of ACE? Uh, the short answer is yes, and the other answer is we're already doing that. The other, the other thing I would, um, not just ACC focusing with AMC, because it does generate new supply chain challenges. When you, when you distribute your force in a very unpredictable for the enemy, predictable for us fashion, you obviously have, have, now have a new distribution in theater challenge. That's why I mentioned earlier what we've seen with our HC-130s, which obviously their main mission is to do rescue uh, but if they're not busy doing rescue, they're phenomenal capability to deliver airmen and parts and pallets. And they, they're pretty darn good C2 node with its organic comm. But the other folks we need to uh, coordinate with is AFSOC. Our special operators um, have a unique skill set for showing up somewhere, low signature. They're by definition multi-capable airmen, very professional and uh, help us with uh, getting in and getting out of a, a spot and refueling and rearming. But to Josh's question, uh, we are working pretty well with AMC. We do recognize the logistics challenge and a C2 challenge. The biggest C2 part that I'm working right now is we physically just don't have enough combat comm to go around a major pacing theater with, with enough comm to do the C2 that we need. And so we're working pretty hard along those lines. But I'm happy for Josh to reach out to our fellows if we need to help him out, round out some of his questions. So thanks. Well, ladies and gentlemen, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this Aerospace Nation event. And I'd like to offer a big uh, thank you again to General uh, Kelly and from uh, all of us here at the Mitchell Institute. Have a great Aerospace Power Conner Day.